Welcome to the Learning with Lowell podcast. I am Lowell Thompson and my lifelong love of learning saved my life. A few years ago, I was in and out of the ER and ICU with no end in sight due to, at the time, a mysterious illness. I read medical journals, talked to scientists and researchers, and learned how to develop a good treatment plan, all of which put me on the path to becoming healthy, which I am now. I have met the team responsible for creating the drug that saved my life, and now I am taking my experiences and love of learning and translating them into interviews with experts, CEOs, and scientists in order to achieve three goals in hopefully every episode, to have fun and interesting conversations that are enjoyable to listen to, to learn what these people are developing and creating, to hear what their tactics, strategies, tools, books, and resources they use to accomplish what they were doing so that you can help navigate your career to help build the startup that you want to build. The best way to help out is to subscribe. Check out the learningwithlowell.com website where you'll have show notes, hyperlinked notes so you can click around in the audio. Every term that we talk about in the episodes go into those notes and they're clickable. There'll be links to everything in the show notes at learnwithlowell.com. The best thing you can do is to sign up to the weekly content letter that I put out. It comes out every week. It is fantastic. It comes from the interviews with guests. It comes from me just reading a lot on the on the internet. You'll have book recommendations, video, articles, things to help you progress in your careers, things to help you develop your startup things to that are just fun and entertaining to listen and watch you'll have all that every week so definitely sign that up check it out and tell all your friends about it that's the best thing you can do to help today we're joined with elliot roth ceo and founder of spira we're going to get into today what spira is how it revolves around agriculture and just to give you a list because this is a two-parter you're going to get this week and you get next week in this episode we get into fbi bioterrorism his relationship with the fbi the how to find a fulfilling life objective and pursuit, how he is developing a startup, how he got started, his thoughts on ubiquity in terms of what he's developing, examples and precedents and history of what he's trying to develop, why he wants to meet the Blue Man Group and Kimball Musk. If, if they're listening or anyone knows them, you should probably connect them with this guy. We brainstorm around some a few business ideas as well, how he forms 100-day challenges to push himself and others, how he hires and mentors people to get the best of them, how he handles immigration and getting visas for employees that he wants to hire, questions that he's always wanted to have answered, literally more, more, more. There's book recommendations. There is website recommendations. There is two hours, two parts. And today we are having part two. So let's get into this. This has already been long enough. So let's start hearing Elliot talk about his business and what he's working on. Is, so is your long-term vision to constantly be the person, like the processing agent to the food companies? Or do you ever intend to make your own kind of like algae burger or something to that effect? Um, so we, we had initially actually started by making food products because um, many people don't know how to work with spirulina, um, algae ingredients, different, different kind of things like that. <clears throat> and so I... I, I think that at the very beginning of a, of a company, it's really important to have focus. And so for us, we're focused on enabling others. Um, if we find an opportunity to actively go about enabling customers directly, and by doing that, you know, creating a food product that no one else has seen before, and only only we really have the skill set or expertise to work with, then yeah, of course. I mean, we'll go and do that, and basically create a food product that customers that we hope would love, um, and be able to really help them in a very healthy way. But 
it, I, there's this, this fallacy that occurs for companies wanting to do everything for everyone. And you find, um, you find companies raising tons and tons of money uh, and ending up kind of disappointing people along the way. So rather than doing one thing really well, they try to do a bunch of things kind of poorly. So for us right now, the focus is just making sure we enable other companies to produce amazing food products by creating ingredients that you know blow them out of the water. Um, in the future, <clears throat> if we have enough resources, if people love what we're doing enough, um, and we're able to, to find a distinct uh, demand or need or value that we can provide directly to customers, yeah, why not? We'll, we'll make food. Yeah, the, are you familiar with the story about lobster? Uh, that's big. I'm sorry. How lobster became as expensive as it is today? Because at one point in time, it here's the story. I'm going to tell you the story. I'm sorry, that was a stupid question. So the the lobster, and tell me if you're familiar with the story, is uh, at one point in time was something that even prisoners would not want to be fed. Like they were like, oh, I don't want, I don't want lobster because just like that is how it was. Yeah, yeah, in Maine. Yeah. yeah and, and it, okay, so it slowly became something that like rich people would use and then it trickled down being something that like people paid a lot of money for. So, uh, so you are familiar with that story. Is that, is that if using, I don't know, farmers are really smart people. I think sometimes they forget that, like a lot, a lot of like, if you were to ask like the average person, like, do you think of a farmer smart and use a scientific method? They probably say no. And I'm like, okay, let's go out to a farm. And you, you see that they use the scientific yeah, farmers method. are geniuses, man. Yeah. Like to, to basically pull nutrition, farmers are meteorologists, chemists, biologists, <laughs> They, they really know what they're doing. Well, the, well, the, the point I was, was going to make the example and then the point is that the, like farmers, for instance, they do this thing where if you give a farmer like a new type of crop, they'll plant it like a 10th of their fields to see how it plays out. And, and like, if you were to give them like a new type of pesticide, they try it on like a 10th of their crops and then see how it, you know, it changed how those did. And then they would apply it to apply it to a third or in fourth and what have you. And so I'm curious if you could use a similar method in making like actual products for people like um as like you spend like 10 percent. if you have like a million dollars you spend like a hundred thousand developing it and then you like experiment like selling it to rich people and making them think it's like lobster um and like developing it out that way like i guess is like an example of a strategy you could use i'm just curious like how would you actually do that um so my my future vision of spira is to create the first food utility company um, so just like we have power from outlets and you you pay a utility for your power and you just get access to electricity all the time, or you, you pay for water, right? And you always have access to fresh, clean water. Um, I think that just getting the necessity of basic nutrition, where you always have access to basic nutrition, um, that's where I want us to move to, to eventually. And as a means of getting there, initially I was, I was producing these home bioreactors. And that was a system where at the press of a button, you could get a shot of protein every couple of days. And it, it was something where we got a lot of interest from doomsday preppers, but not very many other people. Um, and so what I recognized is that unless somebody sees a distinct need for having a food substance in their daily lives as a part of their daily habits, then there's no reason for them to put a device in their home. There's no reason for them to actively incorporate it in their lifestyle. So first and foremost, what we have to do is 
actively make it so that people see spirulina and other forms of microbial food substances as a daily part of their lives. And then if we do that successfully, then I think we can start taking a look at how do we create um, familiar representations of food products or, or things that people eat on a daily basis where it becomes an enjoyable part of their lives as opposed to something where you just eat it out of necessity. So like right now, we'd be able to produce a device that turns out a protein shake every single day. But in doing so, uh, would you want to eat that every single day? Would you, would you want to actually interact with that? So I, I think to answer your question in a very direct way, yes, I would love to have us produce food products eventually. I think it has to be paired with this idea of a food utility company and making sure that we solve the basic human necessity of just getting access to, to regular nutrition on a consistent basis. Hmm. Um, yeah, and, and like you, you had mentioned a little bit, and and I don't want to I don't want to cut you off. Um, you had mentioned about like lobsters and and making yeah. something. Uh, that that is unfamiliar and a little um, it, people are like hesitant about and making it more familiar. Do you do you want me to talk a bit about that, or do you have another question? Yeah, no. Actually, my question's in line with that because I feel that if if you're like the producer, like the person who make like not the producer, but like the refinement. If you're like the mm -hmm. if you're the refinement, like people like little farmers, they they make this stuff. I'm I'm drawing. You cannot see this. People can't see <laughs> at home either. The uh, and then you're the producer. Um, the the manufacturer, and then you bring it to people to uh, make that into uh, an actual product. I wonder if you would have the FBI problem that like this is like really going to like sync up to the beginning of this episode, and people are going to think this was this is all planned, but it wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> but do you think in the same way like how we don't really think about bioterrorism because people are doing such a good job that you could potentially do such a good job at meeting people's food needs that people don't realize that they're you're meeting their needs with something that is different it's so like if you were to think like most people don't really think like where their burger or where their hot dog where these things come from though mm -hmm. it is changing like there are a lot of people that do give many craps about where the food come from <laughs> and like how it's made but i wonder if like in the same way that the fbi just does such a great job that they're almost taken for granted that if you do such a great job and these companies do such a great job that you'll be like the FBI in the sense that like people don't even know to notice that you've done something. Mm. Yeah. Is that like uh, at all a concern or something you thought about? Well, at the end of the day, I think um, a mark of success for my company is when we're no longer needed. Um, if we actively succeed at our mission of enabling access to nutrition anywhere effortlessly, then it, it means that there doesn't need to be a fear of malnutrition. There doesn't need to be people who go throughout the world who are starving or, or have um, have the issue of food insecurity. So, I, I mean, I guess I guess part of uh, any kind of change that happens through starting an organization is if that organization is successful, what then? And so, I, I kind of take a look at. Um, being able to give people tools and accessibility to biotechnology as a means of putting a computer in somebody's house. Uh, back in the 1970s, uh, no one really understood what the ramifications or implications of that would be. And so I, I think as we grow more and more accustomed to working with biology, that being able to have access to uh, biotechnology tools in your own home is gonna be really intriguing. 
It's going to be something where it opens up tons of possibility, but it also opens up tons of risk. Um, for us, in terms of working with food, it's something a lot more approachable than some of the other applications of biotechnology. Um, part of what I talk about is, um, especially with people who are a little more unfamiliar with biotech and agriculture and food, is how a lot of what we eat is planned. A lot of what we eat is fabricated and completely constructed, uh, whether it's crossbreeding over thousands of years to make a specific taste or texture or plant size or yield, or if it is uh, very specifically directed in the sense of agriculture or biotechnology. Um, and so I, I like talking to people about how it opens up a world of possibility when you don't limit yourself in the sense of, um, I want to taste uh, something that looks like an apple, but tastes like a strawberry. Um, or I want something that, you know, normally would be this kind of green liquid that I drink, but I want it to um, smell like flowers and taste like blueberries. Um, I think that in using biotechnology as something that people can interact with, it becomes such that it opens up this possibility to user experience. And that experience is really what I'm, I'm like laser focused on. How do you make somebody's experience and interaction with food that much more enjoyable, less worrisome, and more approachable um, in order to, to get people to recognize the fact that um, there's tons of possibilities and we, we don't need to limit ourselves anymore. So, I mean, to, to your point, um, in getting people to start consuming uh, spirulina, other kinds of algae, microbes, like weird food substances, um, part of it is making sure that they understand exactly what's happening and how they themselves can take advantage of new technologies and tools to make their own kind of impact. I feel like if you're if you're growing something yourself as well, or if you understand where it comes from and how it's made, it, it becomes like you're part of the story. And in, in essence, you are. You're you're the one who's shaping it. I mean, we listen to customers constantly um, from these food companies who are who are telling us like this is what our consumers want. This is this is what they're looking for. And um, I think that there, there's this fallacy in a lot of startup companies where they say, you know, if I, if I listen to uh, the customer, it, it's a Henry Ford quote, if I listen to the customer, they said they would have said they wanted a faster horse. It's like, no, what customers want is they want transparency, um, they want deliciousness, and they want enjoyment and accessibility in their food. They don't want to be fed bullshit because if you're fed bullshit, you feel like bullshit. Um, they want to be fed something that's healthy and they want to be said, fed something that is good tasting. Um, and so that, that kind of is, is, uh, core to our message and core to, to what we're trying to communicate to customer experience. Um, and I would love to give more people access to these kind of tools to, to take and craft food and, and shape it in a way that, that makes it their own. Um, and so that, that's kind of more of our, how we work with farmers and, um, I can see a future in which, uh, just like we have decentralized energy production, decentralized finance, um, we might have decentralized food production. No, I 100% I, I I agree that, uh, or I think as well, that we'll probably have decentralized food networks and that, that it'll be in the same vein as our energy grid and stuff like that. It'll be, um, the, yeah, I, I think that I agree with that as well. I have two thoughts and then 
a bigger question, but I'm curious on your thoughts on my thoughts. So the, so I, I hear what you're saying. And, and so I always try and understand like what people are arguing or like, what, what is the thing that they're are, are, are saying? And I'm curious if like, I'm curious who you're arguing with in the sense that like, who are you trying to convince that this stuff is good and convince them that like it can be used uh, and be tasty and whatnot. Cause it seems like you're, you're talking about it from the consumer standpoint when in reality, aren't you really just talking to the companies who know that like people are excited about this type of stuff because they're, you know, like the, the beyond burger beyond mm-hmm. better. Yeah. Beyond? yeah. So I'm curious, like, like if, if, if it's maybe easier like I get the sense that like it's not as easy as I think it is because if from my point of view I think that if if you're not arguing with the consumer and you just have to educate the 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 businesses that you're selling it to who will then use like what the fact that it's natural and you know all these other things as a way to sell it that really all you have to do is sell them so I'm curious like if that's the case or if I'm missing a, a part that makes you think that it, a consumer education is also important as you develop what you're building. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, so for customers, um, we, we primarily talk to businesses and businesses are definitely listening to their customers, but they have a, an, inverted, an inverted need. They kind of, for, for businesses, they're really focused on something that uh, flips customer needs. So for a customer, um, and, and this is kind of true across the board, uh, customers, when they look at food products, they, they look for stuff that, that tastes great, um, that's convenient for them to get, and doesn't cost that much. Um, for businesses, they flip that around. So they're first and foremost looking for something that's cost effective. Then they look for something that's functional, that they're able to actively use in their food products and, and gets the desired result. And then lastly, they're looking at you know, taste and marketability. Um, and so for a business, it, it basically means that we have to communicate customer preferences to the business and have them recognize the fact that we hit all of their requirements, all their marks when it comes to new ingredients. Um, so we, it, it's, it's intriguing because we have to do both. We have to be a customer advocate um, and hope that whatever businesses we're working with uh, also have their customer's best interest in mind. And then uh, secondarily, we, we have to communicate to the business needs. And so for businesses, they're looking for the most cost-effective protein source. Um, when you take a look at soybean, for example, which is the, the predominant protein source in the world, and spirulina, um, soybean, it, it takes a while to grow. It ends up taking a lot of water to grow it. Um, you have to go through uh, pretty intense processing techniques to actively get protein isolate from soybean. Um, and it, it's um, this massive industrialized agriculture system. For us, we, we kind of focus and hone in on spirulina. Spirulina uses at least 20 times less water. Um, in fact, it's, it's kind of hard to calculate because you start out with whatever water you're gonna end up with, which is kind of is, it grows in these ponds, right? Um, it uses, I mean, at least 40 times less energy, if not more, and then produces, if, if soybean is at a concentration of like 40% protein by weight, spirulina is 60% protein by weight and doubles every day. Um, whereas soybean takes maybe, uh, 30 to 60 days to grow, if not more. Um, and so we, we have like a significant advantage over the largest production crop in the world. And it makes it so that uh, when we 
communicate to companies, we, we actually have a price advantage. We have a functionality advantage. Spirulina can do a whole lot more than uh, soybeans. It's got more protein, has micronutrients, it has uh, this like texturizing ability. Um, and then it, it is pretty uh, marketable because the story of how we actually go about creating it and how we work with farmers makes a lot of sense for these companies to, to start um, getting additional market share or revenue on the basis of what we're doing. Makes sense. That, uh, there's a question that I've, I've heard a lot uh, as like, an, like a thought exercise to ask people. Uh, I'm not going to ask you this because it's hard to answer on the fly, but like, what would it look like if it was easy? And so if you had to, I, it's just like one spot is if the customer was, instead of having to be the customer advocate, if the customers were like, like if you were about to do a pitch with like company A and you had everyone like message company A saying, hey, we want this type of stuff, it, it would make your job easier. And so I wonder mm. if there was any way that you guys have thought about, or, I mean, I have thoughts already, but the, I'm wondering if, if there are any thoughts on how to activate the, the, the end customer to be advocates for what you're developing or if there's any communities that would make it easier instead of like you having to be the advocate that yeah. the people directly are engaged in it. Yeah, it, it's getting easier and easier. So with, with the success of companies like Beyond Meat, uh, Impossible Foods, um, it, it gets easier and easier because more and more companies um, who have been stuck in their normal mode of doing things are recognizing the fact that plant protein is what customers are demanding. And there, there's demonstrated market demand and traction for them to shift over. Um, actually, I had a good discussion with a friend recently about how do you change human behavior? And the conclusion was you don't change human behavior, you replace what people are doing. So in, in the formation of habits, you can't really directly stop a habit, but you can replace that habit with a better habit. And so what we constantly look to do is replace animal proteins with plant proteins, uh, or replace petroleum byproducts with uh, spirulina byproducts, right? Um, and by doing so, it makes it so that we're re replacing a habit. We're not saying, hey, stop what you're doing and do this other thing. And it's working with human behavior. It's actually co-opting, um, in essence, greed or uh, co-opting uh, human nature and human drive to uh, capitalistic drive to, to actively go about finding new and better solutions um, by providing something that's more cost effective, something that does um, does what they're looking for, uh, either providing like a plant protein in a better kind of way um, and makes it so that it's it's really easy for the company to switch. So something that, that makes our job easier would be if we were getting approached by these companies as opposed to us still having to go out and market to these companies. Um, I think now it's interesting. I'm getting more inbound leads from these major companies saying, Hey, you know, we're pretty desperate for new plant protein and we're really desperate for new colors, um, natural colors. Like, do you guys have anything right now? Uh, I think uh, investors are actually uh, laggards in this regard is they, they wait for others to kind of hop on the gravy train before they hop on, and it's a sure bet. Um, and so that, that kind of is the, the last tailing group. We have tons of uh, corporate interest, uh, definitely customer interest, tons of corporate interest. Now it's, it's a matter of getting investors interested. I don't know, this, this will be the last uh, business question, but the, couldn't the, the, the businesses that you're contacting give like a little bit upfront to help you develop it so you wouldn't have to go the investor route? Kind of. Um, we, we've tried to ask um, 
in, in that kind of regard. What, what we found is that, um, so the, these companies, and this, this is true in the medical industry, this is true in the food industry, uh, basically any industry that has the potential of a lot of risk and a lot of exposure to um, millions, if not billions of people. So when you, when you think of the food industry and you think of these large food companies and how, like how many people they actively produce food for, um, it becomes really daunting and becomes something that they're really risk adverse. So they're very wary of anything that they do publicly. And part of the reason for that is that if they say, hey, you know, we're investing in this new protein source, um, it makes it so that not only do their competitors hop on that, but they start getting picked apart if it's not tested yet. And what they want to do is make sure that they uh, tackle all risk prior to implementing anything. Um, you, you mentioned how farmers, they might test uh, a tenth of their uh, crops on a new technique or anything like that. Um, well, for a farmer, if a crop dies, that's fine because you can just replant the field, right? But for a food company, if customers die, um, then you're done as a company. So like, that's, that's part of the reason why they, they aren't very public with how they're experimenting, finding new ingredients, and also part of the reason why the sales cycle is so long. So what we've been doing instead is we've been partnering up, partnering up with smaller startup companies that are very fast moving uh, to implement our new ingredients in their food supply. And then that shows and proves these pilots to the larger companies to say, hey, you know, it's worked in these small companies. These small companies are growing like, really quickly. Um, you might want to implement this in what you're doing. Okay. So here's one of the, an idea I had for you. Um, mm. cause sometimes I throw ideas out. You don't have to like it. You can say it's stupid, but so the, the, uh, there's a new DARPA program where they is called, uh, plant allies. Are you familiar with this? No. Oh, no. well, it's going to be on uh, this upcoming Tuesday. I, oh, okay. <laughs> All right. yeah, but, uh, I'm not plugging myself. I'll tell you about it. So the, the main point is that, uh, they're using insects to deliver vaccines to plants. Mm. And so I wonder awesome. if there's any way to dual nature, this idea of bringing this valuable, cheap, and, uh, you know, great re resource that is this microallergy, and at the same time bring vaccines to, uh, I don't know, like developing countries. I don't know what the term, someone told me we're not supposed to call them developing countries. I don't know what I'm supposed to call them anymore, but like people who are impoverished, mm -hmm. um, like, like partnering with like Bill Gates. Cause like, if you could um, either like, use it as a vector and at the same time uh, a protein source then people are going to eat it and then they're going to get better at the same time and then it's like a, a like a triple win yeah yeah there there actually has been some work done in that regard so my my company is one of the only two companies in the world that has ever genetically engineered spirulina and the other company is a company called lumen biosciences and they actually partnered with the bill and belinda gates foundation to to develop edible vaccines in spirulina they're, they're focused on biopharmaceuticals. Um, and so I can, I can foresee a future where we partner with them as a means of kind of deploying those edible vaccines to some of our farming partners in developing countries. So yeah, without a doubt, I mean, um, part of what's really intriguing about having uh, access to this fast growing um, organism that you can, you can kind of work with in a way that you wouldn't be able to work with conventional agriculture is that you're able to produce all sorts of really intriguing tastes, uh, textures, flavors, but also um, biopharmaceuticals, uh, vaccines, 
um, insulin, things that make it so that we, we start uh, creating bioproduction in uh, places around the globe where they wouldn't have otherwise have access to these kind of medicines or tools or techniques. Um, and so uh, right now we, we operate as kind of like a hub and spoke where in Los Angeles, we get all of these ingredients, all of these materials shipped to us here. And then we process it and send it out to companies all over the place. Um, but I can envision a future in which we work with our farmers to enable local production. And right now we're operating in like six or seven different countries around the globe. And so being able to very quickly spread to, to be able to help these communities is, is part of our North Star. Um, I think uh, in it, I was talking to my team about this is uh, I recognize that um, that will have made an impact if a couple of criteria. So one, um, if McDonald's uh, is using our ingredients in some kind of way, I think that's a very significant impact because that means that we will have gotten all over the place and started helping in particular rural communities get access to healthier ingredients. Um, the second is if our colorant gets, uh, our blue colorant gets used by the Blue Man Group, uh, that'd be awesome. I, I'm a huge fan of the Blue Man Group. Um, and then lastly, if we're enabling these farmers to set up their own kind of bioproduction, bioprocessing, and spirulina businesses in countries all over the world, um, I think that that'll be amazing. I feel like the Blue Man Group is probably easier of the three. <laughs> you could do that today. Yeah. <laughs> see, see, the issue is like you can't really call up the Blue Man Group because they don't talk. You know. Yeah. There's. <laughs> There's a, they have a manager. You can talk to someone. There's like yeah, the key. The, the key is not to talk to them, but to talk to the people who like are their like marionette holders. <laughs> That's true. That's true. Yeah. yeah, I feel like you can do that. I I give you a challenge. Do that in a hundred days. But anyway, so the, <laughs> so one of the, one of the idea uh, things I always like to learn about, especially you like reading um, and challenging yourself, especially since we kind of have a shared love of uh, Benjamin Franklin. I'm curious if there are either examples or hyster historical precedents that you're using as kind of a, not necessarily a template, but as a, a guidepost for what you're trying to develop or like, yeah, you know, the, the saying is like a good, good artist steal or something like that. So yeah, I'm curious, like, like where have you, where have you gone in, in the past? And if they're to like steal ideas, interesting. Guess, um, so what, like one of my favorite political theorists is a guy named Marshall Gans. Um, he was a participant in the civil rights movement and he has this kind of um, theory. There, there's a couple of different uh, people that I steal from. Actually, I, I have to give credit to all sorts of different people for uh, influencing and shaping the, the way uh, my team goes about doing things. So. Marshall Gans um, comes to mind immediately because I've been following his work more recently. And he talks about creating movements and how in order to communicate a movement, um, you tell stories and the story has to communicate um, the story of why, um, the story of us and the story of now. Uh, and, and you kind of talk about things in like terms of why are you doing the things you're doing? And then you start including other people as a part of your process. And then you communicate the urgency of what needs to happen. So we, we are in a period of incredible change in which if we don't produce 70% more food in the next 
30 years, um, billions of people will die, like straight up. And there's nothing really we can do about it unless we act right now to shift towards not only more sustainable sources of production, but something that I call like pro-stainable, even better than sustainable. Sustainable is the status quo. We can't deal with the status quo anymore. We need to go beyond that. Um, another, another person that I kind of draw upon, um, the Thomas Kuhns, it, he, he talks about the um, structure of scientific revolution. And I, I also uh, commonly call it the old white man theory. And it's, it's a theory that change happens um, in the sense that you have an established set of people who operate in a certain kind of way. And then you have these upstarts who have these kind of crazy ideas and the established people shoot down the ideas and they say, no, that can never work. That never happens. Um, there's no way that actually is going to be a thing. Um, and then the upstart, the, the older generation dies and the upstarts come into power and those upstarts now have a new paradigm that they've established. And um, I call it the old white man theory because the majority of the people in the power are old white men who have been used to the world working a certain way over time. Um, when the world shifts or when the younger generations cause a shift in the world, it makes it so that there's a new paradigm of doing things. And so a lot of it is a waiting game to wait until those in power cede their power um, or younger generations create new power structures. Uh, so that's that's always been intriguing, and oftentimes you, you need to find allies uh, in your peer groups and then in the older generation who kind of get it, who understand the fact that, you know, the transition of power is already going to happen and that they need to support these upstarts in different ways. Um, let's see, some of the other readings um, or ideas that I kind of take from how, how to actually get companies to spread. Um, I like, I really like drawing from uh, the spread of the solar energy movement. Um, I think that, like solar energy started in the 1970s, right? And now it's it's in vogue and it's, it's actively getting to places where um, it's all over the place. You can see solar panels on people's roofs all, all the time. <clears throat> I think, um, <clears throat> let's see. Like different different kind of large civil infrastructure projects, like the reversal of the Chicago River or the advent of um, plumbing and infrastructure in that kind of regard, where you have a drastic problem that causes people to change. Um, I don't want the world to get to a point where it's like, oh crap, we have a drastic problem. Like if there is uh, a zombie apocalypse and me and my team are the only ones around because we're churning out spirit, like that that probably is a really bad situation for the world, right? So I would prefer to make it so that uh, people recognize that there's a problem earlier on and we solve it in advance. Um, I don't know. I don't, I don't really know who exactly I can credit my playbook to, mm -hmm. but I think that I draw inspiration from a lot of different kind of sets. Um, I think, uh, so, so one of the, the people I really, really admire is, um, what is his name? He, he's a Norman Gorlog. Um, Gorlog, sorry. Um, who is uh, an American agronomist who 
basically ha enabled um, development on crops uh, in order to create more food for people and um, led changes in agriculture production that, that led to a green revolution. And so where, where I think we are now is that we are in the throes of the biotechnological revolution and we are at the very start of it. And so being at the very start is a very exciting time. It also means that it can head in a bunch of different directions. Um, it can be stymied by regulation. It can be influenced by the people that get, participate and get involved. And this initial starting point makes it such that um, whoever is involved right now dictates the future of the movement. And in doing so, we have choices to make. And those choices revolve around what do we want the world to look like? And I think that there's this nihilistic tendency where you can take a look at all the problems in the world and just kind of give up. And the people that I really admire take, take a look at the void and take a look at all of the horribleness that can happen and say no. And say, no, we have the ability to apply new technology. We have the ability to discover things. We have the ability to reach further towards the unknown and not be afraid of it and actually embrace it and create new things that can solve these problems. And so, yeah, um, I, I kind of, uh, Carl Sagan is another one that I take a lot of inspiration from. Um, and a lot of my humanist philosophy and techno-optimism and utopianism is encapsulated in um, his pale blue dot quote, where he said, this is us, this is all there is. There's that tiny moat of dust floating in the vast cosmos. And if that's all we really have, then what, what does it matter, these petty squabbles, these borders that we draw, um, these, these kind of uh, like worthless interactions that we, we have day to day? How do, you, how do you become part of the human species? How do you become uh, such that you connect deeply with everyone around you? And so, um, yeah, that's, that's kind of the major influence is uh, science fiction, um, the idea that we are members of a human collective and that uh, we should constantly work towards making it such that uh, life itself persists and is bettered by our very actions. So got some recommendations for you. The, uh, have you checked out Wanderers? It's a short film. It's really good. It involves Carl Sagan. No, Wanderers. You're love it. I, I have it. It is my home screen. I listen to it every day, pretty much. Like, I, it's fantastic. It basically starts out with that, the Carl Sagan voice. Like, anyone listening, go check out Wanderers. It's fantastic. The guy who makes that film also is willing to make films for other people if they're willing, you know, willing to give him some money or <laughs> he likes them a lot. Uh, I talked to him once about making a, 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 a video type thing for a startup. But um, Eric Wernquist? Yeah, guy's fantastic. Oh, awesome! It, awesome. Wanderers is like legit amazing. If if you if you listen to it and hate it, I don't know. I'll buy you coffee if you come to Austin. But like, <laughs> but I'm pretty sure you will. <laughs> you'll like it. The, the other one, have you checked out the Interstellar? Like the first Interstellar trailer? Um, no, Interstellar. The, the first Interstellar trailer has in the first ten seconds has this picture. Uh, has like a sequence of events and one of them has like the dust bowl and it involves a lot of air culture imagery. I think you'd really like it. Awesome. 
it's awesome. the, it's like it's that thing like it there's a trailer that really didn't say what interstellar was going to be about but it said mm-hmm. what it was going to be about like as a tautology or whatever like it, it like mm-hmm. it talked about the emotions you'd feel or like what they were trying to capture right. and this this idea of, like the people who don't quit that look into the abyss and they say i'm not going away uh you know you know i, I think you'd really like that i mean both of them are like really sharp don't go quietly into that dark night right like yeah just do something yeah so those two you can listen to both within five minutes and a book for you would be traction i think based on how you've spoken thus far like your methodology and how you 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 parse things out i think it'd be a really good book for one helping recruiting i think it's really interesting and two goal setting and three if you read it i I think you'd probably make your 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 company better i think it's the operating system is fantastic i've talked to a couple of startups who they just they just use the the methodology that's tr- talked about in traction and they were making like 40 million in their first year like not like money is like a a, a, a mile marker for success but at the same time like it like their only reason they were able to do it was because they followed like kind of the right. that he set up yeah because um, there's many different types of success i don't think money is like the qualifier thing like if you were to like like arguably one job i had once was like i could basically pay, take a paycheck and not do anything because i did such a good job Mm. i you know did not do that job anymore like i you know we we stopped working together because i didn't think it was a good you know opportunity i think a lot of people nowadays aren't looking for just money but they're looking for value in other ways but mm-hmm. uh, just as a qualifier of my statement even though i i said it and exalted them for the fact that they made money <laughs> uh, yes. um, have you ever read tribal leadership no no it's a really intriguing book. Um, so that that's kind of where a little bit of how I structure my my team. Um, in the book, they they talk about different stages of uh, organizations where initially you have survivalist tendencies where everybody's out for themselves and the world sucks, and then you have um, I suck, like I personally suck. Um, and people are kind of self-hating and downing of their own abilities. Um, and then the level after that is like, I'm amazing, but like everybody else sucks as context. And that's when you have ultra competitive environments like lawyers, or doctors, or um, different kind of organizations like that. Uh, beyond that, it's like, we're amazing. And then parenthetically, other organizations suck. And then you have competitive businesses where you have organizations that compete with each other, like Apple and Microsoft or Google or whatever, right? Um, but beyond that, there, there's even something even, even farther reaching and it's like the world can be amazing. Um, and it's where everybody believes in their own abilities. They believe in the abilities of their team and then they're very collaborative in nature. And when you go around those organizations and you say, Hey, you know, who is your competitor? Uh, people look at you quizzically. So, uh, there was a group, a a group of kind of, uh, MBA professors who went to the Mayo Clinic and they went around asking people, they were like, Hey, like, who's the main competitor of the Mayo Clinic? And they, they just kind of like looked at them like, what are you talking about? Like, we're, we're fighting cancer, right? <laughs> like for them trying to talk about competition or trying to talk about like gaining market share or other things like that, that makes sense. Um, and you find that in really exceptional organizations where their mission, their goal is so far reaching, is so uh, drastic. Um, and the people in that organization are so efficacious that it makes it so that the the competition, the metrics, the the other things that uh, normal businesses really work towards and focus on fall in the background. I mean, they're they're still there, but 
really at the end of the day you're motivated by personal value set you're you're know that you're solid in your own abilities and you're working towards a really really amazing goal um yeah i i don't think i could ever be a member of a company that just built an app or was looking for additional money um i measure our impact on the basis of the lives of the people that we help mm. it's a good metric uh, you can see that I guess you can see a dollar value, but like, what is a dollar? You, you could try to eat it. <laughs> yeah. I, my, I was talking to my sister recently and she, she just took a job because she needs money. And I asked her, I was like, okay, so you're working all the time now, but what are you working towards? And she goes, I, I don't really know. Like, I don't know what I'm saving for. And I'm like, well, then why are you working? Um, if you're not working towards something, if you, if you don't have some sort of goal or motivation or reason behind the things that you do, um, stop doing it. Otherwise, like it's, it's activity without direction. Yeah. And then you become someone you never wanted to be. You're like one of those people that just like goes into a cubicle and goes home and you say, Hey, what'd you do today? And they're like, I don't know. (laughs) Guess nothing. Not like the FBI people who are secretly doing cool stuff. <laughs> Truly boring people who do boring stuff. Um, I, and I, I think it's really admirable wanting to constantly learn. Um, I end up, especially in, in my career, have come across a lot of scientists who their motivation is to learn as much as possible. But I, I think there, there comes a point at which not learning without application or learning without discovery. Um, learning things that already exist is only doing yourself benefit. Learning as a means of applying it or discovering something new is for others benefit. And at the day, at the end of the day, you, you really only have a limited amount of time in the world. I, I have, um, an infinity tattoo right on my pulse on my left wrist. And to me, it's a call to action every single day to do something that makes my life last forever. If, if I can, um, that might be seen as uh, self-important or, you know, it, it, to me, it makes it so that every action that I take needs to contribute to the future. It makes it so that um, my actions live on in others and in the benefit that it gives to the world. Uh, there's this, this concept in, I was raised in a like Jewish household. My mom was a Hebrew school teacher. So I would, I would go to like Sunday school every single day. And um, there's this concept in Jewish religion called Tikkun Olam. That's healing the world. And what, what can you do now to heal the world? So that at the very end of time, um, nothing needs to happen to actually fix the way things are. We already live in a paradise. There, there's no afterlife. There's no, <clears throat> nothing that, happens it's just like you are in paradise you are in heaven because you made it that way um so what can each of us individually do to make the world better and if we're not following that call to action then like what what are you doing what's going on mm-hmm. to, to to balance out the theologies we talk about and at the same time to add to your point the um the egyptians have like multiple stages of death so the first stage is when you physically die your body mm-hmm. dies the second stage is when everyone who personally knew you died the third stage is when no one speaks of you again uh yeah, but no one remembers you you're, yeah you're no one remembers me. you but i i think there should be uh like stage zero which is when you stop working on what you 
or w- working towards understanding what would be meaningful to your life or to stop working on that meaningful thing that you wanted to work on and give up on yourself. Mm-hmm. You know, there's that, that famous Benjamin Franklin quote, so many people die when they're 25 years old and are buried 60 years later. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah. I think that that goes your point. And at the same time, it, uh, I don't know, not to, not, not to purposely balance the theology. I just thought, <laughs> <clears throat> well, so part of the reason why I'm so laser focused on solving people's basic needs is that you're only able to go after self-actualization if you don't have to worry about survival. Like how many people do you know who actively have to scrounge for rent every single month um, and have to struggle to just figure out how to survive? And in doing so, they're, they're unable to unlock that creative potential. Um, if you have to struggle to survive, I completely understand why you're not working towards an overall purpose or goal or reason to make the world a better place because you're, you're just trying to make sure you don't die. And that fear, that, that fear of limitation, that fear of failure, that fear of um, dying permeates throughout everything you do. Um, when I, when I was food insecure, it, it kind of like, it, it wasn't because I needed to be food insecure. It's because I was like, okay, can I do this without any support? And can I live as minimal as possible? Like what is the minimal amount of safety net that I need or minimal amount of, um, resources that I need to survive. And by finding the extreme limits of human capability, you're able to figure out based on your limits, what can you actually do? What is the extent of, of what you can achieve? So I went to the very boundary of the possible and I was like, well, you know, that isn't, that isn't the end. I'm not uncomfortable here. I can do more. Um, and so that, that is actually something that I recommend people do is figure out what is the boundary of the possible for you? What is the boundary of your survival? What is, what is the condition in which you start getting uncomfortable and start fearing for um, your existence? And in doing so, you understand, you know, what kind of risks can you take? It's an excellent thing to get to like kind of lead into the rapid fire questions I have, which are very contemporary. Sure. The, yeah. um, the first one is just, just as a, I'm not like trying to transition. That's a really good thought exercise. I think people should be doing that. The, and if you want to like, there's like a, a book called the four hour work week. And if you like, you don't have to necessarily agree with what's in there, but they have like these challenges at the end of each chapter. So if you, if you like the challenges that we're, we're talking about in this episode, um, go like pick up the book at the library, um, which is, or get on the Libby app, which is free. Uh, but, um, and then just read those chapters and try, try them out and like, just break the mold of, of what is stratified into who you are and see if there's right. something different in there. But, the uh, so the first question is, and we kind of talked about this a little bit. What is, what are some books that you you give often, or that you would give often to someone who is interested in entrepreneurship in the style that you're developing? You've talked about a bunch so far. So if there aren't any new ones, it's fine. Um, yeah. So so without a doubt, um, uh, tribal leadership. Um, the other one would be Viktor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning. I think that is really essential, not only for personal life, but also for organizational life, finding purpose in your work, finding finding purpose or aligning people's purpose. Um, let's see. I, I think those two are, are really good guides. Um, Lean Startup and, and uh, 
let's see, Lean Business Model Canvas, those two are kind of representative of how we go about understanding customer needs. Um, actually, I, I wish I wish I could find a good book on how to structure and ask questions. I think you're really good at it, uh, Lowell, just being an interviewer uh, and being able to relate to people. Um, I think questions indicate curiosity, indicate learning ability. And so that's one of the things that I, I kind of look for. Um, and I wish, that's one of the, the books that I'm looking for is uh, books about questions, deep questions, big questions, uh, how to ask questions. So if you have any recommendations on books like that, I would love to hear. What is a problem you are having right now, an issue either personally or professionally with your startup that a listener in could potentially help you with? Ooh, um, we got a couple of issues. So the first and foremost is finding a distributor that can help us get our ingredients into the hands of waiting customers. Um, being able to do that means that I don't have to handle bulk ingredient processing myself. Um, I can start working with a partner on that and it just multiplies our effort and helps us get ingredients into customers faster. Um, we're looking for to hire food scientists and salespeople in particular and bioengineers. Um, those are pretty much the three categories that, that we're looking for um, in terms of making direct hires. We have people work remotely as well. So if anybody's interested in food, agriculture, biotech, as a food scientist, um, interested in selling ingredients or working with food companies and uh, bioengineering of novel ingredients um, for food, cosmetic beverages, all sorts of different applications, uh, that would be awesome. Uh, we're looking for investment. We have so much demand that we don't really know how to manage it and having investors who are knowledgeable in food and agriculture would be absolutely incredible. Um, we have a really good investment team so far, and so we're, we're looking to raise the, the, the entire seed round. We have a lot of it closed already, and so having other investment partners who can basically you know, be pretty much kind of part of the team. Uh, I like bringing on people who are very active and who are very knowledgeable. Um, and it can contribute quite a bit to um, going about making a distinct impact in food and agriculture. And then lastly, I would say space. And that, that's more of like an LA specific thing. Um, we're looking for a warehouse to set up a pilot uh, processing plant here in Los Angeles. Um, we found a space, we, we recently won a contest where we got six months of free warehouse space. And so we're looking to double down on that. So the funding is actually gonna help with that. It's gonna help with hires, it's gonna help with distribution, um, but it'll also help with building out like a pilot plant in some kind of way. So uh, if you guys know how to set up any kind of food processing, um, pilot plant production, or are involved with any kind of biotechnological processes, would love to talk more. Okay, I asked some questions. So the just for following up on this. So um, working backwards, uh, you said you would want an investor, like someone who to partner with who would be really knowledgeable in this space. Do you have someone who would be your like Elon Musk? Like if that guy was on my team, granted, like why would Elon Musk be on it? Well, team? all right. So, so Kimball, his brother is awesome and really involved deeply in food and agriculture. So you want um, that guy? Yeah, well, he's, he's a genuine cowboy. He uh, started Square Roots, which is like a shipping container farm. 
Um, he has a bunch of different restaurants that he's involved in. He's, he's really active in food and agriculture. Um, somebody like him, uh, Bill Gates definitely is, is knowledgeable about food, nutrition, uh, things of that nature. Um, but really what, what we're looking for is somebody who wants to get their hands dirty. I think a, a lot of the time those, those people like Kimball and Bill Gates, they, they have investment teams where the people are incredibly skilled and knowledgeable. And I would want to connect with those people who are uh, skilled and knowledgeable and working for somebody who has interests in that regard. Like Leonardo DiCaprio probably won't get directly involved in what Spira is doing, but you know, having his people work with us would be great. All right. Leo, if you're listening in, you know who to contact. <laughs> uh, all right, so the, uh, the next question is, uh, in terms of space, have you ever thought about just like moving to the Midwest? Like if you were to move to like Oswego, <laughs> like it's just like just outside of Chicago, like maybe mm-hmm. an hour, I guess, it'd be like $100 a month. Like why stay in the LA area? <laughs> yeah, uh, so part of it is um, what we're, where our customers are. So if if our customers, um, most of our customers right now produce health food products and they're located around the Los Angeles region. Um, As we grow in size, it'll make more and more sense for us to be closer to large agricultural producers, which are mostly located in in the center of the country. Um, However, like our business model works by by uh, leveraging farms that exist in like desert environments in really hot, far off places. Right. So for us, uh, being in the center of the country makes it so that it, it's a little more difficult to actually get the ingredients um, that we're supposed to get to us. We need to be more in a coastal environment. And the Port of Los Angeles is, is pretty much the largest port in the United States. And so that's why we're locating down by the Port of LA, where we can get large bulk ingredients and ship all over the country. Makes sense. Yeah, and I, I think LA is actually the largest port. Mm-hmm. Yeah, especially in terms of food um, import, that's yeah. that's where a lot of the food comes in. Yeah, they're also innovating on uh, some interesting ways to like uh, like save electricity. Like when a like a, a tanker will come in, if they turn off their electricity and power from the land, they get like fees kicked off and stuff. So like, oh. they're working to like because like if you just leave it idle, so much yeah. oil and all this byproduct comes off and right. destroys the area. Yeah, so they're working on that. I, I, I like, I'm just saying, I like the LA yeah. in terms of that. I mean, also personally, from, from a personal stance, I mean, I, 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 LA has all of the things that I'm really interested in. So I, I write constantly. Um, and so the creative expression of this area makes it so that you have some really interesting creative input in whatever you're doing. Um, I interact with a lot of people in biotech around the area and it's starting to, to have this growing biotech scene. It's close enough to San Francisco, but far enough away that it's cheaper and nicer. It's a nicer weather. Um, it's always beautiful and sunny outside and it has the space industry and I've been a giant space geek for the longest time. So the fact that I can like go out on my roof and watch a rocket launch from Vandenberg Air Force Base is like it, it mind blowing, right? Like how cool is that? The, the warehouse space we're moving into uh, right next door is where they bring in the rockets from the ocean to retrofit. And so that, that to me is just the coolest. No, that's awesome. If, if anything, that's like pretty good selecting like on your part. I mean, Grant, I think this, that's the one that you won, but it'd be, it'd be like if, if you had to, be to, to choose between two different options, like definitely choose like the one closer to the rockets. <laughs> True. <laughs> but, um, what is a question you have that you do not have the answer to? 
it's interesting. If you ever connect with me on Facebook, I do this routine thing where I try to ask a question every single day um, just to kind of promote discussion. I'm, I'm always intrigued by what people think. So I think that's a really good question that you just asked. Um, I, I recently had, had like a question about what is, what is a minimum viable consciousness? Like at what point does consciousness actually begin? And if you, if you grow like little tiny brains, um, brain organoids. Um, so nowadays we have technology where you can actually like make stem cells and those stem cells can differentiate into neurons and you can start growing these tiny brains on a chip. At what point do those brains become conscious or sentient? What, what does it mean to, to kind of be conscious and like at what barrier does that happen? Um, and so both, both from a philosophical and actual like scientific technical standpoint, that that's just like really interesting and kind of strange. And I don't know. I don't know the answer to that. I wonder that too. That's a, that's something I wonder. I wonder if like we have like the Leonardo da Vinci type people on the planet, like these like super intelligent Einstein level people. And I wonder what would it, what would it be like to be like the first cephalopod to realize it's like it's sentient or mm. just, or the first human who realizes it's consciousness. Like, why is this lion eating my friend? And yeah, well, like, I, I was reading a science fiction book and it's called the children of time. And I became obsessed with it. And it's about spiders becoming sentient. I'm checking that out. That oh, it's, awesome. it's so cool. It's so cool. And, and part of it is how do you know something is sentient? If you have, if you lack the tools to understand their method of communication. Yeah. Or their, their understanding of the world is so different that you can't even begin to comprehend like the way they perceive things. Like it, think of human culture and how different cultures perceive the world in different kinds of ways. Um, now imagine that in a different species altogether. Like cephalopods. Yeah, 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 yeah. Their, their con concept of the world is so alien, so foreign that um, how the hell do you even begin to interact? Or, or um, they might already be conscious in some, without a doubt, they're, they're conscious in some kind of way. But are they like sentient in the way that we define it? I don't know, right? And that, that's what's really cool. That, that's also part of the reason why I'm like a pretty robust vegan vegetarian, because um, I truly believe that animals are a lot more sentient than we give them credit for. All right. So that the, the last question, this is like more for what's the best way for people to follow along with you and uh, keep up with the cool stuff that you are doing. Um, so you can follow along with Spira, um, my company that produces food ingredients at spirainc.com or follow all of the social media um, at Spira Inc. Um, you can follow along with me personally through my website, um, that Mr. E T H A T M R E.com. Um, and then that's the, the handle that I use for most everything, whether it's Twitter or Instagram or, uh, Facebook or whatever. So, um, feel free to reach out to me. I, I also write a lot on medium. And so if you want to see my most recent thoughts, they often go up there. Excellent. Uh, then the last question I have for you, since you talked about Carl Sagan, I want to hear a quote that you would like to leave us on that uh, moves you. <laughs> um, actually, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to leave people with a quote from Bukowski. Um, and it is on his gravestone. Bukowski was a local LA resident. And on his gravestone is two words, 
those two words are don't try. And when asked why he wanted to put those words on his gravestone, um, there's actually a piece that he wrote. And in that piece, he, he expresses that it, it, it's almost like a Yoda-ism, right? You either are something or you are not. You can attempt it, you can test it, but at some point you have to decide to become, you have to decide to be a thing in complete totality and totally encapsulate it. So for him, he was either a writer, he was not. It either consumed him completely and kind of burned in his soul and he had to do it, otherwise he would die. Or he wasn't. So don't try at things, become things. Be the thing that you want to do. Um, be the person that you want to be. Uh, I think that anything less than that is, um, it's kind of cutting, sell, selling yourself a bit short. And so, um, yeah, I'm, that, that quote, very, very simply, don't try. Um, yeah, that's, that's what I want to leave people with. And that was Elliot Roth, founder and CEO of Spira Inc. Check him out on his LinkedIn. You can check that in the show notes. Additionally, he has this website, spiraink.com. That's S-P-I-R-A-I-N-C.com. Spelt normally. Uh, check out his stuff. Let me know what you think. And look forward to part two next week. Two-parter, part one this week, part two next week. Don't forget to subscribe and leave a review. We can be found on Twitter at LowellWasHere, Facebook, and on the website, learningwithlowell.com. Also sign up for the newsletter where you can hear amazing content every Monday, new episodes every Tuesday, and new blog posts around every Thursday. Remember to share and tell your friends. Please and thank you.